And in this message, you're going to behold the goodness of the Father. And in beholding him, you're going to be changed. You're not going to be the same person leaving here as coming in. And that's how we're changed. We're transformed by beholding him through looking at Jesus. And to preach the gospel of grace is to point to Jesus. See, religion points to you. The gospel points to Christ. Because in Christ we see the love of the Father. And it's the love of the Father and nothing else that changes us. Praise God. So open your Bibles this morning at Mark chapter 10. To this little passage that you know so well. Where Jesus picks up and blesses the little children. I'm going to read Mark 10. I'm going to read three verses from verse 13. And as we do this, we're just trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to open our heart to see as we sang this morning. That's what he's doing already this morning, praise God. He's opening our hearts to see. And Jesus uh, starts to bless these children. From verse 13 of Mark 10, it says, They were bringing children to him so that they might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them and laying his hands on them. Now that word uh, that Jesus was indignant, it means to be sorely displeased. Um, he was displeased at the way the disciples were treating the children because he said, let the children come to me. There was something about the attitude of the disciples to the children that grieved him. And what it was that in this world, unless you contribute something, you're of lesser value. And so we find in the world, the people who can't contribute, like little children or very old people, they tend to get despised. And that's what brought into my heart why Mother Teresa was such a thorn in the flesh to the powerful leaders of the world, because she gave dignity to the weakest people in the world, the dying poor. You couldn't even find somebody as weak or people would walk over them in the street. And it is said even, I think it was a guy uh, uh, in the fourth century in the church, old Golden Mouth himself, this wonderful preacher, and he said, if you can't see the beggar on the steps of the church, if you can't see Christ in him, don't bother looking for Christ in the chalice. So God wants to give us a revelation of the love of the Father so much that we see strangers like we see our own children. That's what it is to receive the love of the Father. That's what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that this morning. So Jesus, he, uh, when I looked at this first, look at verse 16. It says actually that the next thing Jesus did was he actually picked up the children. Now when I saw that, I thought, okay, he's rebuked his disciples. He said, listen, don't be, don't be like that to children. Don't dismiss children. And then he picks up the children and he begins to bless them. So Jesus doesn't just say something. He demonstrates it. So isn't that wonderful? Jesus was demonstrating what he was teaching. He was such a good teacher. But then something about that thought didn't sit with me. And I thought, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't use the children to teach people. He didn't do that to use the children. He loved the children. He wasn't doing that to the children to teach the disciples something. He was doing that because he loved the children. You know, so often in the church we're told that God wants to use you. Listen, God doesn't use people. Have you ever been used by somebody? What did it feel like? God doesn't use people. I'll tell you why. He doesn't use people to achieve some great purpose because people are his great purpose. People are his great purpose. 
He gives the highest esteem to individual people. Whether you're homeless or whether you're lying in the street drunk or whether you're in prison, he gives the highest esteem to the person, the individual life, you know, praise God. And in receiving that, your life is totally transformed from the life of an individual to something else. So the heart of God, you see, is not self-centered. God doesn't use people to get his way, (laughs) praise God. He loves and esteems every person in such a beautiful way. There's nothing of more value to God than the life of a person. So to God, the life of a child uh, or an elderly person is not worth less than the life of a king or a president. Do you understand that? The life of a poor person is not worth less than the life of a rich person. The life of a healthy person is not worth more than the life of a sick person. God gives the highest esteem to each person. And that's why he said in Luke 12, watch out, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You see, because when we want to give ourselves worth, what do we do? We try and buy more stuff. Well, I live in a bigger house than you, and I drive a better car than you. (laughs) What are we trying to do? We're we're almost saying, "I I want to be worth something, you see? So we grasp at the things of this world to give us worth, because something in us is crying out, you're worthy. God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us of the great value that he puts in us. And this is how Jesus said this. He said, what does profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Let me read you that from Luke 9.25. What good is it if someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? That's an interesting phrase. You see, your very self to God is the greatest treasure in the world. It's worth more than all the buildings in the world. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? John, you are worth more, gone Conway, than all the buildings in the world. <laughs> Look at that man there. He is worth, that is incredible, isn't it? That's incredible. Now, it's the truth. But you know what I find easiest to say that to? My children. I have no problem believing that with my children. Why? Because with my children, I have the heart of a father, or you have the heart of a mother, you see? And so that heart in you, the heart of a father, the heart of a mother, even if you don't have children, you still carry the heart. That's the heart of God, because that's who God is. He's a father, you see? He's not just Lord, Master, Creator. He's Father. God was Father before He was Creator. That's in the Apostles' Creed. Why? Because He's the Father of the only begotten Son, not a created son, and only but so the son has been eternal, so the father's been eternal. God has always been a father. But if we don't see him as a father, I can't see as a father. <coughs> Until you see him for who he is, you can't see you for who you are. Until you see him as your father, you can't see yourself as his child, and you can't see anybody else as his child either. And we're going to talk about that this morning. That's why when his disciples came to Jesus and said, oh, please teach us, teach us, teach us how to pray. How do we speak to him? Jesus said, you really want to know? Begin like this. Our Father. Our Father. Not my Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Isn't that lovely? So how do people see what their true worth is? By being given their true worth by people who do see it. How do your children, Carrie, see their true worth? You give them their true worth by the way you speak to them, by the way you treat them. And your heart as a parent is for everybody to see them the way you see them. You know, it's the longest day of your life, the day you leave your children in school for the first day. Isn't that right, Raymond? First day of school. Oh my goodness, you're looking at the clock. I hope they're doing all right. I hope they're doing all right. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I hope everybody sees their value. You know, one of the longest days of my life is dropping my kids then to university. 
I remember dropping Hannah in the middle of Edinburgh and driving away. Oh, it's tears streaming down my face. She's standing there with a suitcase. I'm leaving my child in the middle of a city. You know, I did the same for Peter in London. What's your heart's cry? Lord, let people see them the way I see them. Can't you hear the heart of the Father? That's the way he feels about every single person in the world. That none should perish. That's his desire. That people would see people as I see them. As I see them. That's why you're given the Holy Spirit. That you and I would see people the way he sees them. But how can I see people that way if I can't even see myself that way? And that's the big problem in the church. We're really good servants, but we're not good sons. Because we don't know him as our father. As our generous, loving father. A father so loving and generous that he has not withheld one thing from us. For if he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And he has. He has poured out all things. It's so, so good. Praise God. So, why did Jesus say to the disciples that he must receive the kingdom as a little child? Because children are the best at being dependent on another life for life. Rich people are the worst at depending on another life for life. Because the whole point of getting rich is you won't have to depend on your family. Isn't that right? That's why Jesus said it is so difficult then, easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. There's nothing against being rich, but it is something against depending on yourself and on your own resources. Praise God. That's why I don't think it's an accident that the story that immediately follows this is the story of the rich young ruler. Because this morning we're talking about receiving and how God helps us to receive what has been freely given. Praise God. So Jesus really is pointing to these children as good receivers. Now, you see, we focus too much on strength in the wrong way. We get strong in our self-life. We see maturity as the ability to live independently, you know. So even with our children, we look forward to the day when they can move out and live independent. But you see, that's not maturity in the kingdom of God. Maturity in the world may be the ability to live independently. Maturity in the kingdom is the ability to live utterly dependent on another life. It's not to have a self-life. It's not to get strong in my individual life, but it's actually to be connected more and more to see that I don't have a life, a life. We have a life, his life. Now that's maturity. Oh, Many of us as believers live as servants of God. So we're studying the Bible for years in order to serve better. But we never grow in our sonship because we've never grown in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. We become very good at doing, but not so great at receiving. We become very good at doing, but not so great at receiving in the way a child receives. So many of us as Christians, therefore, we live like the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Because we see God as Lord and Master, someone to be served, but we do not know him as a loving father. And so we're so busy doing for him that we've never learned how to receive from him. Do you know the elder brother was so busy serving the father that he actually believed that his father had given him nothing when his father all the time had given him everything. Can you see what he had? He had a receiving problem. And his receiving problem was made worse because he was so busy doing rather than receiving as a child. Praise God. And so we absorb the spirit of the world into the church and we think that we're getting more mature when I'm getting stronger and getting a better Christian. No, you're getting worse. (laughs) Because the more you're focusing on me and my Christian individual life, the more you're not seeing it. You don't have a life. You don't have a righteousness of your own. (laughs) 
You don't have a prayer life of your own. You don't have anything of your own. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And the life you now have isn't your life. It's his life. Praise God. Many Christians are great servants, but poor sons. And so that elder brother, Luke 15, he saw the father primarily as his master to be served, and he cried out, I have served you. I have served you all my life. Where's my reward? And you know, many Christians see heaven as a reward for their years of service. They see salvation as a place. And so we preach the gospel as how to reach that place sort of message. And that message sounds like, here's what you need to do to reach that place. Salvation is not a place. Salvation is the life of God gifted to us in Christ, imparted by his Holy Spirit. That's salvation. So the elder son was crying out in effect to his father, where is my reward? Where is the blessed life I was promised? And the father was replying in effect, you already have that blessed life because sonship is the blessed life. Everything I have is yours. That's what we have today. Praise God. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And countless believers, we have deferred our hope of salvation to a place one day rather than life today. And our hearts are sick of waiting. Better days are always coming, but they never seem to arrive. To know God as your Father today is to know today the life of a son, the life that is content in all situations. I'll say that again. To know God today as your Father is to know today the life of a son. The life of the son the life of Jesus is content in all situations, in all circumstances, because he never looked at a circumstance to see if God was his father. Oh, I'll say that again. Jesus never looked at a circumstance to see if God was his father. Remember, the devil came to him after he'd been starving for 40 days. He said, well, have a look. You're hungry. You're tired. You're exhausted. You've got nothing. Are you sure God's your father? If you are the Son of God, why don't you do something? And so we're tempted as well to look at the world. Oh my goodness, look at my life. Whatever is happening in my life, whether I'm homeless, whether I'm sick in my body, whether the whole world is falling down, whether I have no friends left, we look to that to tell us if God is our Father. You will never find God to your Father if you look to this world. The Apostle Paul wrote at the end of his life, I've discovered the secret of being content, whether I'm hungry or well-fed, whether I'm clothed or naked, whether everybody hates me or everybody loves me, I don't look anymore to that to tell me if God's my Father. You know why? Because the spirit of sonship cries in me, Abba, Daddy. God has given His Spirit, and by His Spirit we're able to see, in fact, that we are His children. And that's why the New Testament describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of sonship. He's the one who enables each of us to see ourselves and so live as God's children. And to see others, and to see others as children of God, even before they do. Now, I need to give you scriptural examples of that. And we've been looking at that over the last few weeks in the midweek uh, study. In Acts 9, the Holy Spirit enabled Ananias to see Saul of Tarsus, the murderer of Stephen, as a child of God before Saul himself saw it. In Acts 10, the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to see Cornelius, one of the hated Roman oppressors, to be a child of God, but before Cornelius could see it. But for Cornelius and Peter, or Paul, Saul of Tarsus, to see that, somebody had to tell them. Somebody had to preach Christ to them. Somebody had to preach to them the revelation of the fatherhood of God in order that they could be whom God sees them to be. You see, that's why we need the gospel. 
How are they to believe if nobody tells them? Praise God. So this is beautiful. Someone had to preach that revelation of the fatherhood of God. But Ananias and Peter both couldn't do that apart from the revelation of the Holy Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit's given, that we may see people as God sees them, you see? Now, both Peter and Ananias couldn't see those people. Ananias couldn't see that dirty, rotten murderer of Stephen as God's chosen vessel. just couldn't see it. Cornelius couldn't see those dirty, rotten Romans as worthy of God's life. Just couldn't see it. And, they, and you can see that in the response. Ananias told God bluntly, I can't treat that guy Saul like a believer from his behavior. He's obviously not one. Didn't you get the news? He killed Stephen. The same with Peter. Peter was in effect telling God, no, there are some people who are not clean enough for you, Lord, so I'm not going to speak to them like they're your children. And three times the Lord had to say to Peter, what I have cleansed, do not call unclean. And the Lord was in effect saying to Peter, don't go to those Gentiles with a message that says they first have to clean themselves up before they can be my children. Don't do that. Don't point them to themselves. Point them to Christ. Point them to what has been done. Point them to the one who died for them, that their sins would be forgiven. Point them to the one who cleansed them already, that they may receive him as their cleansed and holy life, that they may receive my Holy Spirit as their life. That's what the gospel does when it's preached correctly. Praise God. And we'll look this week actually at exactly what happened when Peter preached that message. So I believe many in the church think the gospel is a message about cleaning yourself up for God rather than the message that God has cleansed. And do you know what finally opens people's eyes to the truth that God had to do the cleaning? That God had to make us holy all by himself? Our total failure to live the Christian life by trying harder to be holy. (laughs) Is anybody here willing to admit that they are a total failure? in trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. Can you remember that's how you began this journey? Can you remember that's how you were birthed into this journey? By admitting that you needed a Savior? Every generation of the church, the same thing happens. And the Lord has to, we have to rediscover what Paul said to the Galatians. How foolish can you be after starting your lives in the Spirit while you're now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And that phenomenon is seen in every generation of the church. Christians, as we forget that we are children of God entirely by the gift of God's grace, and not because we're sinning less than we used to, we start to promote, when we forget that, we start to promote sinning less as the way to become a child of God. And so we think the moving of the Holy Spirit as something that happens in Christian meetings where people sin less, not out in the world where people are sinful. The Bible doesn't say that. That's not the gospel. The hope of the Christian is not a sinning less life. It's a sinless life. For the hope of the Christian is not him or herself, but Christ. What does it mean to be rooted and grounded in Christ as your Savior? It means that you come to see by the grace of God that his life, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension saved you. Not your life for him. His life. His life. Praise God. Your sinning less life is not what saves you. Christ's sinless life saves you. For apart from his life, his spirit, there is no life as God knows life. For Father, Son, and Spirit have always lived a shared life. You and I cannot have a life apart from him. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. 
your old, try your best to be holy for God life, died and was buried in Christ. And no matter how many times you raise and resurrect that life and try and lift it up and put a suit and tie on it and march it off to church, it's still going to stink to high heaven. Because self-righteousness stinks to high heaven. You know, I love to listen to this preacher called uh, Peter Swart. He's a South African. And I love watching him because everything goes wrong during his broadcast. <laughs> you know, he's just like us. He's not polished. You know, the sound doesn't work and forgetting. Oh, he's just so funny. He makes me laugh, you know, because he's so real. And he's so utterly dependent on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the grace of God. And I heard him say something recently that so often as Christians, we think that sinful people grieve the Holy Spirit and he leave sinful groups of people and go and work among holy people. Peter said that he got saved as a prison guard in a jail in South Africa. And he saw God do more miracles among murderers and rapists than he's ever seen since in the church. If you were alive 2,000 years ago and you went looking for Jesus, where would you find him? Where would you find him? I read a wonderful quote by a believer called Roddy Young, and I shared it yesterday on our church page because there's something so profound in it that many of us have missed for years as Christians. He wrote this, It was through being a monumental failure at living the Christian life that prepared and conditioned me to hear and understand the message of grace. I'll say that again. It was through being a monumental failure at living the Christian life that prepared and conditioned me to receive and understand the message of grace. Praise God. See, the gospel of God's grace is not a message that you can reconcile yourself to God by living better. It's the message that God and Christ already reconciled you to himself so that you never again have to lead an individualistic life all by yourself in all your religious pride, looking down your nose at other people who don't live as holy as you. <laughs> you don't have such a life. You don't have a separate, apart from God life anymore. Your righteousness is his righteousness. The spirit in you is his spirit in you. Praise God. That's why the Apostle Paul could write, you know, I died and the life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Life to God is not an individual thing, it's a communal thing. And so we started this message with Jesus picking up those children and saying to his disciples, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you must become as these children. You see, the world sees greatness as independence. But in the kingdom of God, greatness is utter dependence. It's utter dependence. You don't have a life apart from him as God knows life. A life apart from him cannot save you, for that's not even life to God. Can you see then that people aren't saved by their repentance? or their prayer, or their faith, as if those things have nothing to do with God. Repentance is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Praise God. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write that those things are not of ourselves. They're the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, and thereby bring division into the body of Christ, where one group of Christians is looking down the nose at another group because they don't think that they do repentance or do faith like we do. You don't do anything by yourself. Nothing. Everything is by the grace of God. That's why I think the greatest miraculous outbreakings of the Holy Spirit are always among jail, people in jail, or people who are so broken, like little children, all they can do is receive. All they can do is receive. They don't have a long line of a record behind them that they're dragging behind them, like, I've gone to church for 25 years. I'm speaking about myself. That can be one of the biggest hindrances, praise God. Do you know how many Christians say, Oh, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. What happened to it? You let somebody steal it from you. 
when you absorbed the message that it was down to you and your work and forgot the message that it was all done already before you even opened your eyes. This is what it is to sing of the love of God forever. One day we're going to see it so clearly. But let's not wait for one day. Amen, Marguerite? Let's see it today. Let's see it today. Oh, oh, oh. oh my goodness me. You know we are the most generous, loving people in the world. God, we have got the most generous, loving father in the world. Do children not take after their father and mother? When we see our father for who he is, we will be the children we really are. Because a confident, loving, generous father produces confident, loving, generous children. Praise God. Oh, I've got to bring this message to a close somehow. Now. We grow in the likeness of the Son of God, not by trying harder to be a better individual, but by giving up all rights to such a self-centered life and all the religious pride that goes with it, and humbly receiving the life of Christ, the life of a Son of God, as a gift. For when we receive this life as a gift, only then can we live our days in simple thanksgiving and utter childlike dependency on him. And that's the will of God for your life, you know. We sometimes think about what's the will of God for my life. Is it that I, I thought the will of God for my life was that I become a vet, you know. Or I become this or become that. I do this or do that. People look for the will of God in, in the world. The will of God is this. 1 Thessalonians 5. Who can say it? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for you. So on the day when you get the horrible doctor's report, on the day when you get the horrible report from the bank, on the day when all your children run away and nothing's turned out the way you thought, on that day, you can rejoice always because you're never looking to these things to tell you who you are or how good your father is. You have the Holy Spirit for that. And that's where we preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of what God has done, the gospel that reveals the goodness of the father who always knew what he was signing up to when he looked at you and I and who looks at every person in this world exactly the same. He desires that none should perish. If only they could hear... But how can they hear if nobody? We are the people who can see that Christ in us is our great reward and our great hope. We are the people who can see that salvation is not heaven one day, but Christ in us today. For salvation is not given on the basis of our record, but of Christ's. Praise God. What advantage did those children have that made it easier for them to enter into the kingdom than a rich man? They did not have the strength or the resources to lead an independent life. Boom. And that's why the very next scripture is the rich young ruler. A man who came to Jesus. A man who said, you know, I, 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 I hardly sin. I hardly sin at all. But inside himself, he knew he was empty. He said, Lord, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said to him, I'll tell you what you do. You go and get rid of your record because you're depending on your record. Sell everything you own. Come follow me. Because I'll tell you, eternal life's not about your record. Eternal life is not the reward for your best life. Eternal life is being with me. Come be with me. You want eternal life? Come be with me. You want eternal life? Believe the gospel. He's with you. You're with him in Christ. Receive that. Believe that. Live from there. Live from that place of knowing that it doesn't matter what is in your life, what's going on in your life. You are a child of God. And you can live that way when you see how generous the Father is. Praise God. Amen. Eternal life is not a reward for leading your best life. You think that your salvation is found in your strength. It is not. It is found in your weakness. When you're weak enough to know that you cannot live apart from me, the Lord says. 
When you're weak enough to discover the truth that all your best efforts to live the Christian life are a monumental failure, when you know that, then you're ready to understand and receive the message of grace, the only message that sets you free from yourself. Praise the Lord. Now, this brings us to the table, because the Lord has left us a table to help us to practice receiving. Because we're so good at doing, we're so poor at receiving. So let me share something about receiving as we break bread together. If you have emblems there, just take them out. This is called the communion table. What a wonderful word. Everybody say the word communion. communion. Do you know what's so wonderful about the word communion? It's about the only thing you can't do yourself. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's the only thing. You know, we've just gone through a terrible period of separation. You know, that's a work of the enemy. That's a work from the pit of hell. That sort of virus where people are separated and families have been separated and people have been stuck off by themselves. You know why, in my humble opinion, the enemy always tries to kill the child at birth. We see that through the scriptures. When Jesus was born, all the children, Herod killed all the children. Same with Moses at that time, all the children. The enemy always tries to smother at birth something God is doing. You know what God's doing throughout the earth? He's giving a revelation of how together we are in Christ. The one body, one life, one faith, one spirit. There's a great in-gathering together. That's the Holy Spirit that Jesus said of the heart of a mother. I want to gather all to myself. There's going to be a great in-gathering. Barriers are going to break down between churches. Barriers are going to break down between the church and the world where people try and dismiss people as types. We're going to see people as loved by God and people, there's going to be a flood of people into the kingdom as little children as we learn to become little children again. And so no wonder the enemy wants to come in and bring separation because he is absolutely terrified of the union that's manifesting across the body of Christ. Praise God. So here is we get practice receiving rather than doing. Here's where we come to him rather than go for him. Here's where we get to be reminded that we receive as sons, not as servants. For what we receive is not wages for work done, but the gift of sonship. Here is where we're reminded that communion in Christ means that our hope is not heaven one day, but Christ in me today. If you think that you're cleaner than your neighbor life is what qualifies you to come to this table, can I tell you something? You're not believing in Christ. You're believing in yourself. That's tough, isn't it? I'll say it again. If you think that you're cleaner than your neighbor life is what qualifies you to come to this table, you're not believing in Christ. You're believing in yourself. You need to become like a little children again and be absolutely, totally, absolutely, totally and utterly dependent on the grace of God and come to this table not as a servant begging, but come as a son who has received. Praise God. Don't be like an elder brother coming here thinking, when am I going to get what I deserve? You've got everything in Christ. There's nothing more to get. All that has to happen now is our eyes to open that we may see what we already have. And our eyes are opening. Can you say amen? amen. Well, let's eat and drink together as a big amen to what God's doing in our lives. Praise God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your body broken. Thank you that we are healed by your stripes. We lift up Robert Walker's niece, Jackie, at this table this morning to declare healing and life and blessing over her. Do the same, Lord, over every family member who's struggling in their mind or their body this morning. Thank you for the wonderful declaration of what you have done that sets us free from this world. In Jesus' name, praise God. Can anybody say hallelujah, amen, this morning? Amen, amen, praise God. Thank you, Father.